Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is your brother Baraka Blue sending you love and light and welcoming you to Path and Present. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. This episode is a special episode and uh, we are very happy to introduce our guests. Before doing so, just wanted to give a couple updates. Um, the first is that we'll be teaching a course on the 99 names with Rumi Center. And we've been doing that for the last 99 days of the calendar year. This will be the third year in a row. It's been personally the most transformative course and impactful course that I've ever taught, actually. Um, and it is a deep dive into the 99 names of Allah. Each day we focus on a name um, and people can do it at their own pace and their own time. And then we have monthly live sessions. And we focus, we take from Al-Ghazali and many other of the great spiritual masters of our tradition. And um, the whole intention behind it is to follow the prophetic injunction to characterize yourself with the characteristics of God or qualify yourself with the qualities of God. So Imam Al-Ghazali calls it our share. What is our share of the name? How do we embody this name? And so that's the focus of the course. And, um, you know, inshallah, uh, it's been really transformational. Many people that have taken it have been taking it every year. So I wanted to invite everybody. The course is called Awakenings, and uh, you can find it at roomycenter.love. That's roomycenter.love. And uh, I'm also gearing up to go to Turkey, alhamdulillah, with Rumi Center to do a Rumi retreat. So very much looking forward to that and to spending time with, with loved ones. Um, and we just finished a program here in Seattle at Wasat with Imam Adeinka Mendes. Uh, we did a retreat on uh, meditation in the Islamic tradition, uh, the Sunnah of mindfulness, uh, which was really beautiful. And uh, we also had a release for his new publication uh, with Celebrate Mercy, he translated a book of Imam Suyuti speaking about, um, it's called The Spirit, The Spirit of Black Folks, and uh, it's speaking about black Sahaba and Islam in Africa, uh, and African scholarship in a way that's really beautiful. So I, I recommend everybody to check that out as well, inshallah. Uh, but as for this conversation, this conversation is on the case and on the life of Imam Jamil Alamin. And for this conversation, we're blessed to have Kairi Alamin, Imam Jamil's son, as well as Maha El Kalali, El Kolali, who is um, someone who is uh, also intimately involved in the case, and both of them. Um, you know, our legal professionals who are supporting the case. And I won't say too much about it because we get into it in the course of the conversation, but this is a case that every American should know about. Um, the details of the case are very strange and very troubling as far as the, the fact that it just wasn't a fair trial. There are so many details that were omitted there was a confession from someone else 
Um, and, and these things, uh, you know, even with all of this, there has not been a retrial after all these years. And so, uh, you know, it, uh, this is a type of trial that we want to do whatever we can to raise awareness of it. Just let people know, because I think if people really knew the details of this, people would all be clamoring for a, a fair trial. And so, um, with that, I'll give you this conversation, and uh, I pray that, you know, uh, justice is truly served, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bismillah rahim Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Today we have two special guests. Usually have one, but we're honored with two special guests. And that is our sister Maha and our brother Kyrie Alameen. Uh, we're honored to have you both here. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to share with our podcast listeners what you've all been up to because I've had a number of conversations online, particularly with yourself, Maha, um, about the case and about the life of Imam Jamil Alameen. And so we're honored to speak about him and to have his very own son um, to speak about him as well. So first of all, I think we'll, we'll start, start first things first with you, uh, Brother Kyrie. For those that don't know who Imam Jamil is, uh, maybe you could share a little bit about about him and his life, and then also personally, right? You're his son. Um, you know your experience of who the world knows Imam Jamil or H. Rap Brown. Sure, for sure, <clears throat> for sure. No, he's definitely uh, he's definitely three people, if not many more, to me. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's a uh, H. Rap Brown, who was a person I never personally met. Um, he's Imam Jamil, who's the person I grew up with. Uh, and then he's my father, who is really the person <laughs> that, that I grew up with uh, and that I know maybe better than I know any of the other ones. Um, but I do have some historical context as to who he was when he was a trap Brown um, and, and how that led to who he became as Imam Jamil. And, you know, even how that translated into how he, he raised me. Um, because he's always been kind of the same guy. What, what I tell people all the time is Islam just gave him um, a rubric for which to apply that energy that he had um, when he was in the civil rights movement. Um, you know, a lot of people know one of the, ma one of the big, uh, big sayings that came out of the, the civil rights movement was by any means necessary via uh, Malcolm. And I think Brother Malcolm and my father, after, you know, finding Islam, realized it wasn't by any means necessary. It's by the means that Allah set forth. Um, and, and success is easier to find that way when that's the, you know, the rubric that you're following. And Alhamdulillah, in his, in his uh, adjustment, he was able to establish the things that he had always wanted to establish, like his community vision. It wasn't an Islamic community vision or anything. it was just what he always saw for his people, a place where, you know, the kids could go outside 
any hour of the day or night and be safe walking up and down the street playing, you know, where the women aren't worried about, you know, being accosted in the streets, where they're not worried about who's selling drugs in their neighborhoods, where, you know, you can go and you know, you hear not when he became Muslim, you hear the call of prayer in your in your American neighborhood <laughs> five times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are things that he was able to establish because, you know, he had a, a, a foundation that that was based in something and that he could always return to as opposed to kind of just, you know, we got to get this done by any means necessary. And uh, it also gave him a more worldly view of his activism uh, as an African-American civil rights activist in the 60s. Um, he had a very singular goal, and that was African-American activism and trying to, to, to you know, liberate those people. But after becoming Muslim, you know, he took a world view, as I stated, and it was more about anyone who needed help, because that's what the law says they're supposed to do. Uh, the, the levels of Iman are, you know, if you see something wrong, you either change it with your hands, you hate it with your heart. I mean, you speak it, speak out against it, or you hate it with your heart. And the law says hating it in your heart is the weakest form of, of Iman. And he never wanted to be one who was displaying the weakest form of Iman. So he was a front line, is a front line uh, activist to this day, uh, so much so that if you're able to get a call with him or have an opportunity to speak with him, he's going to ask you if there's anything he can do for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the man I know, you know, as my father as well, you know, anything I need, uh, any position he's able to, to anything he can do to put me in a better position is, is what he's going to do. But he always impresses upon me that success isn't the, the ultimate goal. It's, it's, it's attempting to achieve that success within the confines of, of, of what a law says is, is acceptable. And so, you know, I haven't always been the perfect, <laughs> the perfect example of how that's supposed to go, but it's always been a part of kind of, you know, my reminder that's in the back of my head and it's led me kind of down the path that I've been on, which mm-hmm. has had some twists and turns, but it always led me back to, to, to Islam for one and to things that may not be acceptable to other people, but in my heart are acceptable as far as my relationship with my Lord goes. And so, you know, that's kind of a, a quick rundown on who, who Imam Jamil is, Imam Jamil, Atrap Brown, my father, who those people are to me. Mm. Uh, I think Maha could give a better uh, understanding of who he is to the general public as wow. she's more part of the general public than I am. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, to foreshadow before we bring into that, how old were you when when he went away, when he was locked up? Uh, when he was locked up, I was 12. Wow. I, I always say 12. I believe I might actually been. I was either 11 going on 12 or 12 going on 13, mm-hmm. but young. So yeah, those impressions as a young a young boy of, the, of your father who, yeah, you know, you growing up, right? He was a very prominent in the local community, but even in the in the national community of, of Muslims in America and doing all that work. I want to get to that and really the impact that he had um, in the community and the work that he was up to. But I do think it's apt to, to kind of start in the, in the HRAP Brown phase. So maybe we can bring in our sister Maha to, to fill in some of the historical details as far as, um, you know, the role he played in the tumultuous and pivotal civil rights uh, period. I seek refuge in Allah from misleading and being misled, from betraying and being betrayed into ignorance by others. 
I ask Allah to guide my heart and to guide my tongue. Okay, so Ajarat Brown. First of all, with young people, like, you know, when you hear the word rap, you think of music. So uh, we have to mention that rap in its conscientious form, maybe not today's form, is named after Ajarat Brown. Um, and Ajarat Brown was very active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He was, in fact, the fifth chairman of the Student Nonviolent coordinating committee and in 1968 was for six months the minister of justice between SNCC and the Black Panther Party. Um, he was so heavily involved in the civil rights movement that he attended a very contentious meeting with um, at the White House with then President Lyndon Johnson regarding the Selma crisis of 1965 and the volatile situation that um, surrounded voters' rights in the African-American community. He then went on, he organized um, for Black voter registration, registration and enforcement of the Voting Rights Act in Alabama. So this is a man who was on the front lines of the civil rights movement in the 60s, who basically risked his entire life to lay the foundation, not just for um, African-American voters' rights, but laid the foundation for all of our rights, right? All, anyone who is non-white, who is um, Im an immigrant to this country, who may not have had all the rights that they have now, had he and other leaders during this era not put themselves at risk. Um, so he continued, he was, uh, in 1967, he was supportive of the Black Power Movement and was heavily involved in the fight against Jim Crow segregation. So these are all extremely volatile situations. They are a huge part of our history. Um, just before Hajj, I was in DC and I was at the African-American Museum and he's there, like they recognize him. Perhaps they need to recognize him in more detail and that's something that we need to work on. But he is a huge part of American history and he is a part of American history that still lives. Many of our African-American leaders from that era were assassinated or targeted or destroyed. Um, some still are incarcerated just as he is. Um, but this is a man who is the walking embodiment of American history, who's being erased and, and not being permitted to tell his story. So Kyrie, I, I love hearing it from the emotional perspective and from the family perspective, but this is a man that we all owe so much to whether you're Muslim, whether you're African-American, whether you're an immigrant, whatever you are, the way that this country is now is, you know, we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants and this is one of those giants. So this is not a small matter. And the fact that it is brushed under the rug is extremely concerning for all of us because I believe that we all have to answer for our negligence of him. So just moving on as he accepted Islam, um, you know, I think before before getting into that, I want to just say, you know, something about that period is it's really important, I think, to to drill down on. And, and now it's very clear you're, you're talking about a time of extremely tumultuous time. And you're talking about on the heels of, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, Rahimullah, and, um, you know, the the Panther Party and all of these um, you know, things that are coming on the heels of that. And you see that now has been in a lot of the, the documents have been released that the, the actual government, the FBI, 
in particular was deeply concerned about you know what they what they you know you know the african american population in america and the concern over the idea of like a black messiah which even you'll find in these you know kind of in these documents and this is the context in which you know charismatic leaders who were speaking to the injustices of the time and essentially rousing and uniting black people but but not just black people also white people that were sympathetic and you know to the injustices um there was a, a deep concern of the U.S. government at that time that this was going to um, cause instability. And, and uh, of course, the backdrop of the Soviet Union and the kind of Cold War is important because there was a, a fear of somehow like a fifth column or some alignment. There was like more, you know, large geopolitical concerns, right? Because the, the U.S. government was fighting all these proxy wars all over the world to define the narrative of what the U.S. was. And the they really were trying to say like, look, we're so much better than the Soviet Union. Look, America is the, is the, is the, is the model for the world. We want to, but there was a large problem and that is that, the historical treatment of African-Americans in this country. I mean, there's this glaring, um, you know, um, divergence between the kind of ideals of, of Americans as enshrined in its foundational documents and the kind of self view that America liked to put up, put of itself and its treatment of its own people. Uh, and so I think in the backdrop of that, the, the government was willing to go to lengths that are still to this day shocking um, to destroy and to undermine. And if necessary, in a number of cases, to actually, uh, you know, extrajudicial killings of leaders who were rising through the ranks. And the story of Fred Hampton is one of the most glaring examples that has come out right again he was said you know he was very young right in his 20s but he had this ability he was starting to unite different street gangs in in chicago and he was trying to bring black and white activists together and you know he was assassinated i mean it's what it is because again and you've seen the documents like we the fear of a black messiah like he's too charismatic he's too powerful and we can't allow this so I think that's really important to give the context for people like you mentioned who might be younger and who may be um, less um, fluent in some of this history that, you know, there was, there was of course, um, imprisonment. And now there's very clear that there was, um, you know, trumped up charges. There was a sense of like, we need to get these people um, to be quiet however we can because they're dangerous. They're unsettling our Society, And I think the broader context, the geopolitical context is important to bring in because it's not it wasn't just a national thing, but it was it was like a, you know, it was a, a problem for the U.S. globally as it was trying to fight for global hegemony. Who's going to control the narrative? And, you know, so I think you mentioned also that kind of, um, you know, internationalist scope. And I think when 
Malcolm, for instance, and even MLK at the end of his life, started to articulate things as far as human rights and internationally, that became something that was untenable for the U.S. government to, to, to have to reckon for. Um, so anyway, I think those contexts are important and that that he was just in a very important name um, and, and player within that that context. Um, so, you know, to piggyback off of that real quick, if I can. Yes, please. Um, one of the one of the things whenever anyone brings up that, uh, you know, brings up Fred Hampton and, and the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. Yes. I like to make sure that folks understand, you know, because one of the things we deal with a lot is why would they do that? Why would the government do that? Uh, to, to him or, you know, in, in our situations, like they wouldn't do all these things you're saying they did to the E-Man. But after watching the Judas and the Black Messiah movie, I've been able to kind of change the conversation. And the conversation goes a little bit more like this. Like, do you believe what the movie told you about Fred Hampton? Most people say, yes, it's a true story. I believe it. Well, the truth of the matter is Fred Hampton wasn't even mentioned in that meeting or in that document by the U.S. government recognizing the potential rise of black messiahs mm -hmm. imam jamil was though mm -hmm. and so if you believe they did what they did to fred hampton for the same reason please believe they're doing it to the people that were actually mentioned in the document and the only one who's still alive <laughs> is in prison for something he didn't do uh and that's imam jamil out of me so that's uh that's just an important note you know, even the naming of that movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, the government in this country has a has a history of giving us our heroes um, after they're gone and also making sure we understand what happened the last time we had a hero. Mm -hmm. You know, this, calling him the Black Messiah tells you the last time you had a Black Messiah, we shot him in his bed. Mm -hmm. So careful, <laughs> careful how you step it. And so all those things, I think, are also very important in the context of, you know, discussing that era. Yeah, yeah I, just to, mm -hmm. I wanted to piggyback on it a bit, is that Imam Jamil is the opening scene of that movie. So I, I don't know that too many people note that, but he is quite literally the opening scene. And that COINTELPRO, that counterintelligence program document that you're referencing is like an August, just to put it into perspective with the dates, is like an August 1967 document and it's naming J. Edgar Hoover, specifically named H. Rat Brown, Stokely Carmichael, Elijah Muhammad, Maxwell Stanford as specific targets of this program, just to be very, very specific. Um, and then in, in unraveling this, this case, and of course we'll go into the dynamics of it, this is a state case, this is not a federal case. And you know, come to find out, that there are 44,000 pages of documents that the FBI has on the surveillance of this man. And we can't, we haven't even received all of them. Like Sister Karima and Kyrie are still receiving, those documents are trickling in. And it's years and years, Kyrie, I believe a decade in, and it's massive. So this is how much surveillance and plotting and planning that surrounds this case. Right. No, that's important. And, and I don't, you know, for those that are new to the case, it will, this is important groundwork to lay. So there's no doubt that he was on the radar. In fact, he was a central figure that they were watching and documenting and tracking and concerned about. Right. And I do think that's even a piece of that movie, uh, you know, on Fred Hampton leaves out. I think it's important for people in that context of like, why would the US government do that? People just want their rights. I think people forget that there was this, 
the U.S. government was fighting this this Cold War, and they're it's they're really concerned about internationally the reputation, and they're trying to the U.S. government trying to frame itself as the liberator and like come to our global order, and then the the Soviets are saying no, come to our global order, and so like the the largest problem, and the Soviets were exploiting this too. Like look at how the the Americans treat their own black population like you want so there were that you know there's this deep kind of thing again when malcolm really leaned into the internationalist and and saying like no i'm going to bring this right to the u.n as a as a as a human rights violation these type of things the the kind of global chess that nation states are playing i think is an important backdrop with, to really frame for people um why the concern was so grave it wasn't just about some domestic issues. It was actually about it was it was a geopolitical threat in in the context of that time, as at least perceived by the U.S. government as a destabilizing force. So uh, I think Maha, you were you were starting to get in. So that's important context um, to bring. And I think uh, you were going to maybe mention the the second chapter that we wanted to get in because he did have a profound transformation of his life that didn't reduce his concern and his service of his people, but, but, but framed it within a, within a different context, perhaps when he embraced Islam. So maybe you could share a little bit about the A-Trap Brown to Imam Jamil. Yes, absolutely. So um, he ends up incarcerated and he takes his shahada and A-Trap Brown becomes Imam Jamil Abdullah Al-Amin and you see a shift in his mindset. And Zapala, you know, it's weird how things come together. I was reading um, Malcolm's uh, diary. He has, you know, they released his diary from his travels. And you see a very similar shift in the mindset from like the civil rights movement to the human rights movement mm -hmm. that I think Imam Jamil's mindset uh, parallels Malcolm's mindset at that time um, in that, okay, we have a duty towards human rights. Uh, irrespective of, of race, irrespective of all these other other issues. Um, and, and he shifts and he starts to fight uh, human rights concerns for human rights concerns. Like um, he was very active in the Bosnian task force against Bosnian genocide at the time. Um, he was extremely outspoken on the liberation of the Palestinian people. And of course, the empowerment of the African-American community in its entirety. But anywhere there was wrong, even until this day, his position will be if there is wrong, wrong is wrong. And we have a duty to correct the wrong. Right. Um, so he is just in his nature, I feel a, a soul that has constantly been concerned for the um, state of humanity. Right. And I think that his belief system and his transformation in a theological perspective perhaps refined how it is that he addressed those issues mm -hmm. um, and that calling within his soul, right? So you all, I, I know Kyrie spoke on it a bit, but he wrote this book, Revolution by the Book, right? Mm -hmm. And I recommend everybody get a copy of it, but essentially it seems so basic. And he talks about you know the basic tenets of Islam and how those tenants impact how we address um, the outside world and how we address our fight for, for human rights and, and just how our day-to-day -day, uh, behaviors can influence change, right? 
the importance of Salah, the importance of congregation, the importance of community, all of these things are addressed in the book. Um, but even till this day, he will say like, you know, if there's an outcome on a case and Kyrie and I are like, I can't believe this, he, he'll, tell, he'll remind you, do not become angry. So you see this, you know, constant um, spiritual foundation that he has now that dictates his behavior, that dictates how he does that. So when you combine his uh, time with SNCC and his time working with the Black Panther Party and in the civil rights era, his ability to strategize, his ability to um, organize people, his ability to have an understanding of what systemic reform looks like. And then you combine that with a spiritual realm and an understanding of like the metaphoric, um, the metaphoric reality of what we're doing here. And you combine that into one person that becomes a real threat because now he can influence people, at least to the system, right? If, if the system is corrupt, it becomes a threat or it becomes, um, people are afraid of that. And the bottom line is if you were around in the nineties and you saw Imam Jamil, he was like, he laid the foundation for the national Muslim organizations, all of them. He has laid the foundation for all of them. He is one of the four uh, leaders of the American Muslim community that laid the foundation for ISNA, for ICNA, for CARE, for whoever it is that you want to say, any national organization, he is part of the foundation of their existence, right? And, and if you remember him at some of these conferences that we frequent, right, you'll remember this towering man, this man who has eloquence in his voice, his, his spirit naturally attracts people. And, you know, the joke is like, if you see Imam Jamil at Isna, you'll see the brothers making tawaf around him, trying to just get a little piece of his wisdom, a little piece of his love, a little piece of his gentleness, right? Um, and these are qualities that I don't think I've seen in another leader since he's been taken from us, right? So this is a man that went into the West End of Atlanta and who, like Kyrie said, transformed a neighborhood and made it safe. And, and he has an understanding of systemic reform and how you bring people to this spiritual change. So, you know, there's an example. I was talking to him one time. I was taking a class on like unlocking the gems of the Quran, right? Or unlocking, I can't remember the exact title of the class right now. It's been a while, but, and I was telling him all these things that I had learned. And I said, you know, you remember Jamil, these are awesome, but like to get somebody to read it is the challenge. He said, no. You know, most people you interact with, you can't tell them, go read the Quran, they're going to go read it, right? Forget unlocking the gems. They're not even going to read it. Mm -hmm. He said, what you're supposed to be is the walking embodiment of the book. And when you do what you're supposed to do, according to the teachings of Islam, they will then ask you, well, what made you help me like this? What made you feed the masses? What made you protect us this way? What made you clean up our community? And then you tell them the book. And that's when they will go read it. So this is the man that we're talking about. This, to me, a spiritual giant who is just the kindest of hearts. Mm. Well, I think that's important and setting that foundation of like the role that he played in his community where locally he's really transforming a neighborhood. And like you say, he's, made, he's um, bringing people together. And even like those like sports tournaments and like really making, again, like, supporting a young a, the younger generation to mature um 
you know, and have mentorship. And then he also is going to these conferences and playing a role in the kind of national Muslim uh, community as, as a leader, as a, as a thought leader and as an imam. Um, I think that's really important to understand. That and that as, was, yeah. And as the actual chairperson of these organizations. So, you know, he was the chair, he, you know, he, he, he led ISNA, he led ICNA. Those are his, those, he, they, he was at the top of those organizations. So thought leader, you know, spiritual leader and imam, but actual leader as well. Like he mm -hmm. was actually in charge of all these organizations that we know so well today and all these conferences that we, you know, we, we, we tend to, uh, attend uh, and not hear his name spoken. <laughs> so you know, he went from definitely being the 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 lead the lead speaker, the lead everything to these organizations, and uh, getting them to to get back on board is very important to 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 me personally uh, because my family used to drive around the country, and I used to be sitting in these back seats on these fourteen hour drives sometimes for for my father to go and keynote some of these uh mm -hmm. these conferences so you know oftentimes as maha said my father has to remind me do not become angry in my dealings with people because um i remember the tawaf around my father <laughs> yeah no i want to get into that um and, and kind of you know all of that as far as the context of um why there has been frankly, so little support for this case, um, you know, nationally, um, unlike some other cases. But before we get into that, I think, I think, um, I think we've kind of given a sense of the, his trajectory that, and this kind of brings us, and Maha, with your legal, you know, um, you know, background, maybe you could, you could speak to us about the case, right, about ultimately what, um, brings him to prison uh, where he still resides after all these years. Okay. Um, and just kind of like in Kyrie's own right, because he may not say it, Kyrie is a licensed attorney also. Okay. And he has been like fighting this battle his entire life, right? Awesome. So, you know, this, I'm sure we haven't had this discussion, Kyrie, but I'm sure this inspired your legal education in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, Kyrie's legal mind is absolutely brilliant in so many ways. So I give you the utmost respect in, in conquering that, that challenge of law school and becoming licensed and fighting for your father um, in the front lines. So I am um, not the attorney of record. There are so many amazing attorneys on this team, alhamdulillah. Um, so there's, I, we kind of pull it together and, and, Kyrie and I do this aspect, and then there are different cases that are active, which we'll get into. Um, so essentially, there was a situation, and uh, I don't know, Kyrie, do you want to go into the initial, what led up to the arrest, and then I can do a little bit of the history of the case? Um, as far as like the, the, the incident that, I, I don't really like going into the incident that took place, and I mean, I can give them the details, but it's like, I don't even like describing it because I'm, I have to describe it as the thing that, you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. but go ahead, you got it's it. Personal. You got yeah. it. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. I got you. I'm going to do this how we usually do it. So briefly, you know, it was a situation in which honestly, the initial allegation was it was a traffic stop, right? All of this started 
from a traffic stop. And ultimately, um, that traffic stop, just kind of fast forward, after all of this happened, that traffic stop ended ended up um, being thrown out and found to be unconstitutional to begin with. So that's like constitutional violation number one, right? Um, but essentially there was a court date that was set on this traffic violation. And I believe there was a storm, the hearing was reset. He didn't get notice of that reset. And Kyrie, you can correct me if I ever misspeak, I don't wanna misspeak. Um, and ultimately a warrant was issued for his arrest for missing a court date on this traffic stop okay like that's really the foundation of this whole thing and that, that's what even makes it more ridiculous um the fact that a warrant for an arrest would be issued and i believe had it not been imam jamil formerly h rap brown we probably wouldn't have had the warrant to begin with okay let, let's set that foundation so a warrant is issued for his arrest two officers go out to um serve the warrant and to arrest him, um, Imam Jamil is not at his store. Simultaneously, we have Otis Jackson, who is kind of right now the center of this whole uh, story and saga that continues. Um, and Otis Jackson is at Imam Jamil's store looking for him, right? And he's never met him before. He's uh, on parole or probation, but he has an ankle monitor that is now we know has is dysfunctional, not working, but he's in violation to even be where he is looking for Imam Jamil. So he wants to look for Imam Jamil to meet him to discuss whatever issues he wants to discuss. And, you know, so many people in the community go to religious leaders for all kinds of issues. So nonetheless, as he approaches the store, two officers approach the store it, with the intent to serve this warrant. Long story short, Otis Jackson, James Santos, whatever other names he likes to go by, thinks he's you know being picked up because he's violating, and um, and a there's an exchange of fire. So this breaks out into this kind of a scenario. Two officers are shot. Long story short, two officers are shot. Before the one officer passes away, he gives a very, very detailed description of the assailant. Both officers give the same description of the assailant, um, being somebody who is 5'9 with cold gray eyes. Never do they mention Imam Jamil. They don't mention that Imam Jamil is 6'5. They don't mention Imam Jamil's brown eyes. Now, we all know that the FBI and law enforcement know exactly what Imam Jamil looks like and who he is. If you're serving a warrant on Imam Jamil, you're not gonna get his description wrong if you think he shot you, right? So that's why this initial description is so critical because they did not describe him. They described someone much shorter with very different shade of eyes, right? So at that point, both officers, one officer survives um, and the second officer passes away. Um, they do a photo, like a photo lineup to identify who the assailant was. And at the time that they do that, there's painkillers and all of these other things in effect, right? So going on, they both, both officers said that they were uh, very confident that they had shot the assailant. And when they shoot, I can't remember if this is a statement that the officers made or if this is part of their record, but they have, they're very... They're uh, on their record. They're they're marksmen. They're, you know, they're mark. They have marksman training. Right. So they're very precise. If they say they shot the assailant, they likely shot the assailant. Okay. And there is um, 
many records and there's uh, um, the media coverage and everything supports that the assailant was shot. There's descriptions of blood up and down the road. There's all of these details of a man running up and down the street trying to seek help, trying to catch a ride to get medical treatment. It was clear that the assailant was shot. Uh, just to kind of fast forward, when they ultimately pick up Imam Jamil, he is not injured. He has no signs of any um, uh, bullet wounds or gunpowder or anything. If you go to the scene, there's no fingerprints. There's nothing that ties Imam Jamil to this scene. James Santos or Otis Jackson, um, it, it's interesting because we just did a mashup of his 2002 uh, you know, Kyrie, I don't know if you, we, should, we can bring that up and, and send it to you, but um, his 2002 admission of, of committing this crime and then his 2019 um, sworn testimony of committing this crime. But in his testimony in court under oath, he says, oh yeah, I was involved in this incident. I was shot. I have the bullet wounds. Like he was shot that day. And all of this hasn't been ruled out. It was, it was never uh, presented in the lower courts. So this is evidence that the jury never heard. Um, so this man, when he was violated ultimately shortly after this, had the wounds, um, the bloody shoes and the clothes he describes as being left in the closet when he was picked up after his violation. The day of the incident, his ankle monitor failed and he is 5'9 with gray eyes. So the fact that Otis Jackson has not been fully explored is shocking and, to he's still, and he's still sending letters to us as recently as you know last month reaffirming hey it's still me like i still did this i still want to tell people i did this help me tell people i did this so you know he's been uh sticking to his guns for a very very long time pardon the pun so I mean, I want you to be able to finish the story, Ma, as well, of the, of the incident and, or just and what ensued after that and what brought Imam Jamil into custody. But I also, as someone unlike you two, but probably most of our listeners do not have like a, did not go to law school and do not, do not understand maybe all the intricacies of, of a case. It just seems like at this point, it's like the, the, the obvious question is if somebody admitted doing a crime, and the other person who is charged for it, you know, maintains their innocence. Isn't that the end of the story? Like, shouldn't that just be like, okay, then we got the wrong one. And like, what, 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 it, it just, that's the logical thing, right? So maybe you could explain, and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun. If I am, you can maybe build up to that, but, but you know, that it's just shocking. Well, from the, I'll let Maha handle it from the legal perspective, but from the basic, at the very, at its basic, you know, uh, foundations, yeah, it should be that simple. And for most people, it is that simple. And honestly, I believe for the imam, it's that simple as well. But the thing that usually tips that scale is, is public pressure and, and interest. You know, plenty of people are in prison right now with situations where there's probably somebody who else, somebody else who did it, people know who did it, but the United States government, especially the judicial branch, it's not about justice, it's about finality. And so when a sentence is given down, the one thing they hate to do in any level of court is overturn it. <laughs> so, you know, there has to be a certain kind of outcry 
for that to happen in most cases. And the reason, you know, and the history, the history of the United States kind of shows that anytime we make noise, there tends to be movement. If we don't, then the person usually sits. And that's just that, that's where we are right now. Now, there's there's legal reasons as well as to why, you know, we haven't been able to reintroduce it as evidence uh, as far as appeal goes and things like that. But that's the reason why at its foundation, it hasn't worked yet. That that works for most people because, you know, that's usually the hang up. If someone says I didn't do it, the first question people usually ask is, well, who did? And we actually have that answer for them. And so, you know, that's the that's the fight that we're facing, the uphill battle that we're facing. And that same logical kind of why is he still sitting inside is exactly why we've we've transitioned to the uh, the the action items that we have now, which we will also get into, because we want everyone to see this story and have that same aha moment. Like, so what are we doing here? (laughs) And, And I think if we're able to accomplish that then, you know, we'll be able to, we'll be a step closer, at least, to uh, opening those doors. And I think, you know, there's nothing normal about this case. (laughs) Nothing normal about his incarceration, nothing normal about how it plays out in court. Nothing is normal about this case. It's one of those reverse by any means necessary. It's like oppression by any means necessary, right? It's oppression, whether it's, okay, we're gonna try to kill him through medical neglect, or oops, let's accidentally leave him in the back of a van that's over 90 degrees and he's old enough, maybe he'll die of dehydration. Like it's, there is no logic as to why you would leave even, let's go to the extent of like, he was 78 years old, left to be blinded for an extended period of time. And a surgery could have been done very quickly and easily to remedy that. But oh, to them, it's just fun to let him stumble across, you know, and get hurt in prison because, that's the kind of case this is. Let's violate every possible human rights, uh, any any type of constitutional right this prisoner has because, you know, frankly speaking, they just don't care. They just don't care. So is it normal? No, there's nothing normal about this. And Imam Jamil, <laughs> you know, I'm not a really, I'm a sore loser. Like if it makes sense and we're supposed to win and we don't, I'm upset, right? So. It's interesting because he consoles us like it's okay, you know. I know you all think this is his words. What do you say, Kyrie? Um, I know you all think you're gonna win this in the court of law, but this isn't a legal case. This is on a law's terms, and when it's time, it's time. It will happen. But I'll let you all do what you do. Like these are the discussions he has with us. It's a very high understanding. Like this is called it a law. And this is my test. And this is, you know, he'll constantly, there's even a recording. He says, the prophet used to say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, struggle is my manner. Devotion is my art. My pleasure is in my prayer. He used to call Islam this affair. And part of this affair is a constant struggle. Like, this is what you will hear from Imam Jamil, even now, even after like, being held in the worst prisons of this country under the ground with like a window at the top of his cell and being locked in this cage for 23 hours a day. People don't come out of that prison um, normal mentally. And this is a man who is like holding on to that. He's holding on to that. So I mean, I can do you want me to go into the case? There's like No, I think it's important. I think it is important. Okay, so we have this outline of that there's an individual who 
got into a shootout with the police who was on, who was violating his probation. And Wait, see, the Ahmed, your voice is, um, your sound is off. Like it's, uh, I know you want to get the sound right. It's like squeaking or something. Well, it might be because of my background, I got. So yeah, why don't you, why don't you go, uh, go on and, and kind of explain the rest of what happened as far as Imam Jamil, um, you know, in his case. Okay, so I could just briefly, because I know time is uh, an element here, right? It's it's threefold. There is a state appeal. So this Imam Jamil, it's, it's a little bit of a very, it's not a little bit, it's a very strange situation. He's a state of Georgia prisoner, okay? So this is a Georgia state case. Um, so there's, the first part of this is that there is a state appeal, and that is pending um, it's now going up to the Georgia Supreme Court waiting to be heard. Uh, a lot of people wanted to know, what's the update? What's the update? Unfortunately, everything here is snail pace, right? So it, my understanding is that from the date that the appeal was filed, it's approximately one year until that um, the Georgia Supreme Court makes a decision on that. So that's where we are with the appellate case without going into the details of exactly what the legal argument is, right? But we have to remember, like the appellate case is limited to that which was presented during the trial. There are so many elements of this case that were not presented at trial, um, including uh, the fact that the FBI agent wasn't, uh, the defense team wasn't permitted to cross-examine the FBI agent. This Otis Jackson, who has consistently uh, confessed that was not presented to the jury. I mean, on and on and on, Bernadette, um, she, the, the forensics expert, the ballistics expert, she was found later to be involved in several uh, cases where she falsified the ballistics in other cases. Like these are all major issues on the trial level that wouldn't even be heard at the, on the appeal, right? So that's one component of this. Um, the second component is now that Fulton County has this conviction integrity unit and essentially they can look at a case from beginning to end. Uh, they have reopened this case to look at it intensely. Unfortunately, there are hurdles in that. Um, you're talking about a case that's 22 years old at this juncture and evidence and trying to locate evidence and um, the shenanigans that go with that. And then interviewing Imam Jamil who is housed. So he's a Georgia state prisoner being housed by the federal government. Um, despite his family being in Georgia or, or on the East Coast, he is all the way in Arizona. He's in, two, he's in USP Tucson, right? Mm -hmm. So they have isolated him from his attorneys. They've isolated him from family. They've isolated him from his community. Um, and the state of Georgia actually pays the federal government every month to house him because they allegedly, it's too much of a risk to have him in Georgia. And that's a whole story in and of itself, right? So on the state side, you have the appeal, you have the Fulton County Conviction Integrity Unit that has the ability to go back and recommend a sentencing reduction, or they can recommend an entirely new trial or completely exonerate him and free him, right? So our hope is with the Fulton County Conviction Integrity Unit. Kyrie made a very valid point that we have been, you know, the silence is deafening you know, from the community, even if you look at like the Black Lives Matter movement, this, if Black Lives Matter, this man's life matters, like he is the foundation of 
everything that has to do with that movement. And it's just the silence is deafening. It's deafening. So we just need people to to bring the pressure and and to maybe spread the word on the importance of this man and and why it's critical to ensure that he is released and able to tell this story. A part of this country's history will disappear when he's gone, you know. Um, And then the third component of this is just monitoring his health. He's aging. Um, He's about to be 79 next month, inshallah. And, you know, he's, he's very sick. He has a laundry list of ailments um, that are quite serious. He's not properly housed. He's, um, like I said, they're extremely negligent of his medical needs. So part of this is just us tag teaming, making sure we call, um, making sure that, and they do play games with the phone calls. Like, where is my client? I need to know where he is. Because unfortunately this family, Kyrie hasn't said it, but they've suffered so much through this journey where like they, change his location and they don't know they're not given any notice or sometimes even I've gotten the call Imam Jamil has passed away and having to negate like is he alive is he dead like this emotional roller coaster is not what anybody should ever go through as far as family members are concerned right um so and the third part of this is like filing federal lawsuits if his rights are violated within the federal prison system Um, We do have an active case within the federal prison system because we can't get him transferred. We've tried to get him transferred from the federal prison system back to the state prison system so he can go back to Georgia. That's not working. So we're now kind of shifting gears and trying to get him transferred within the federal prison system to a federal prison system in Georgia so he can at least be closer and be more actively involved in this case. That's a very brief summary of this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... So as you brought up, you know, and I would encourage people to, to really look into this case and, and inshallah at the end we'll, we'll give any action items. But um, essentially we have a case, we have someone who is accused and convicted of a crime that in, in the meantime, uh, someone else has confessed to that crime and fits the description. And then there's all these other points of evidence that you mentioned that the ballistics expert has, you know, it subsequently it's come out that they've tampered with evidence. And there's all these reasons that uh, a retrial is, is in order, right? That just from any, I think, fair-minded human being on earth, if you didn't mention anyone's name, but you just detailed the outline of the, of, of, the facts, the non-disputable facts. Um, I can't think of any human being who would be like, no, we shouldn't retry that. At the very least, we should present all the evidence that has come to light since then. So, and again, as someone who is, you know, not a legal professional um, and understanding, and we, I think we did lay the groundwork that shows like, this is not a normal case, this is not a normal individual, that this is someone who the government at the very least, um, him being quiet and going away um, is is not going to cause the government, uh, you know, to, to any any trouble. Right? You know, like it, it's a convenience, um, if anything. Um, at least as it was perceived, you know, historically, given his his vocal challenge of of the injustices in this country. So. 
can you help me understand like what does it take for a retrial? What does it take for this to get a fair shake? Like present all the evidence. Um, isn't that the ethos that you know that we're all about in this country? And, and what is what would it take? And what are the barriers towards that legally? Um. I believe that is the ethos of the, of this country, and I think that is the, what it takes. It takes this country activating on that ethos and deciding this is a case that we as a country care about and want to see fixed. Again, the, ju the, ju the judicial system is about finality, and especially in a case uh, where the man that we're discussing is someone that I don't think you wanted to use this word, but I will, the United States hates. Um, when they when when they have a real hatred for someone, overturning that person's conviction becomes a whole different ball game. And so, you know, again, my even though I am an attorney, when I took over the role of my father's kind of point person for his campaign, my goal the entire time we have enough attorneys. Everybody, like Maha said, is excellent. Uh, my goal on that team is kind of just the liaison to make sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing and contact who they need to contact. My my point position is public, uh, the, the the public's perception of the case and 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 generating um, generating a pop culture kind of almost interest in 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 this in this uh, in what we have going on because I've seen so many. Uh, and we all have seen so many pop culture activism, uh, uh, activist causes succeed. You know, when the masses decide that, especially if it's a, it's a, you know, a righteous cause, so to speak, it's a real situation. But we've seen it succeed when it wasn't. You know, one of the people that I harken back to all the time is Meek Mill. It's like we watched him actually break the law and people got upset enough for them to say, never mind, Meek, you can go free. And so, you know, it's that kind of pressure that it takes for these folks to do the right thing. They've never this country isn't founded on doing the right thing. Like that's not the history of the United States from slavery forward. This country is built on doing what is most beneficial for the country. <laughs> and so, you know, when you become a thing that the country views as, you know, the country as in the system views as not beneficial to it then you become an enemy of the state. And the only way to fight that fight is to be an enemy of the state is to be a hero of the people. And if you are a hero of the people and the people have forgotten about you, then the state doesn't have any any recourse for, for fixing this. So that's that's basically where we are. He, one of our heroes was taken from us and this, the government has learned this lesson. They're not making martyrs of our heroes anymore. They're erasing them <laughs> because it's an easier situation. You know, killing him was one thing. Then we end up with, you know, H. Rat Brown Day, October 4th, and we celebrate that annually. But no, instead, we, we, we paint him a, a cop killer and we erase 50 years of humanitarian work. And we erase, you know, the, the, the setting up of the Islamic, the national Islamic community as it is, as, as it is recognized today. We erase these things because when you Google Imam Jamil Alameen, you see cop killer. And so that's where we are right now. We have to get the people back to caring about this man who did so much for us. And it, it sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a, I hate to be the one almost sometimes making that request because I have a, such a strong bias as his son, but as just a member of 
the world he helped to shape as an African-American who can make the kind of money I want to make and work the kind of jobs I want to work and do those. I have that kind of appreciation for him as well. And, you know, that that's why our asks have changed. It's, it's gone away from the thing that we really should be asking for, which is exoneration, because that's such a hard line. And for people who are still kind of shaky on this issue, it's hard to get behind. OK, mashallah, give us a fair trial. And if you can't even give us a fair trial, just go talk to the guy who said he did it <laughs> at the very least do that. And so, you know, we feel like talking to the guy who actually is admitting to doing this is our next step in creating kind of that sensationalism that America requires sometimes to 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 be activated. And so that's why we uh, we're so we're still very, very confident that we can get this done. And especially with this new kind of. Uh, action item that we're we're undertaking we think we can activate the people through it yeah and i would you know even you know, like making an appeal to those that care about this country and those that consider themselves patriots and those who you know is, is that you know and i think as you mentioned with the ethos i think the ethos and the principles of this country are beautiful and there's always and anyone who's fair-minded will acknowledge there's always been a, a vast distance between the ideals and the reality. Mm -hmm. And if there is light and beauty in this project, the American project, it is that there are people who struggle to bring the reality closer to the ideals. And we all celebrate them. That's why, even though, you know, Martin Luther King was, you know, number one enemy of the state in his time, now, right, he is a, he's a national hero. And even Martin Luther, uh, even Malcolm X has been, you know, he's on stamps and he's not like, there's a, there's a sense of like, okay, in hindsight, we've had somewhat, it's not over, but we've had somewhat of a racial reckoning in this country where the average person acknowledges more than in the 60s, you know, the average white American acknowledges that the, the things that people, the average white American in the 60s couldn't acknowledge, right? And there's still distance to be traversed, of course. But the point here is that in hindsight now, if we can rehabilitate the, the image of these great civil rights figures and understand that, you know, though maybe people were turned off by the fiery rhetoric of a Malcolm X, then in hindsight, it doesn't seem so fiery. It doesn't seem so brazen it doesn't seem so crazy because of the insanity of the context of 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 racism in that moment and so and, and uh, you know muhammad ali is a perfect example in the end of his life right just uh, celebrated as one of the great icons of america again in his in the, in the earlier period he was the most hated man in america and so your point is really well taken that here we have a civil rights icon who is still alive and who is imprisoned in a trial that whatever your position, even people who are like, I'm not convinced, you know, like you said, I'm not convinced that he should be exonerated. I can't like any fair minded person is like, there should be a retrial. There should all the evidence should be presented. And, you know, the, the truth should be given its day in court to prevail. Like, I can't think of any human being who is not a, you know, who, who is not 
you know, who would be opposed to that given the, the indisputable facts as they're presented. And so you know, I just wanted to, to mention that because, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's astonishing. And it seems to me that you're right, that there are cases which are less clearly, uh, obviously, um, you know, worthy of, you know, being retried that are being retried. And there are other people's case that is being um, stepped. So I, I want to say that. And, and then there's a couple things, and maybe Maya, you, you could jump in. Because I do think, and I remember you and I talked about this, that part of, I think, and, and now this isn't, you know, you could tell me, do you think that it's because of like the post 9-11 situation of Muslims and Muslim organizations in America that had made it so Muslim and, and Muslim civil rights organizations have been, you know, afraid to really get behind this case or really, you know, focus on it? I definitely think that 9-11 played a huge role in the initial trial, right? Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's interesting to watch, you know, there's this case and, and being a part of it. And, you know, Kyrie, I thank you and your family for even trusting me to take part in this. But this journey, taking this journey with the El Amin family, it's... Um, it reveals a lot of the reality of the condition of our ummah in America, right? As far as the Muslim community is concerned. And it's, although we're raised in a community that teaches us like Islam has no room for cowardice. If there's something wrong, we absolutely have a duty to do something to change it, right? A part of our deen, a huge part of our deen is justice. Like, to me, that is a main theme of Islam, justice, right? And even the Prophet وسلم, would remind us like the worst things in a man are frightened miserliness and unrestrained cowardice. And I hate to be so harsh, right? But unrestrained cowardice is the theme in this case. It's that, you know, I'll call people and they'll be supportive and excited to help us. And then I'll get the call back and be like, I got a call and, you know, I could do this, but I can't put my name on it. Or, you know, there's it, fear drives us. We are driven by fear. And and as an ummah, I'm not really witnessing leaders that are driven by faith. Right. We're driven by fear, not driven by faith. And um, alhamdulillah, I mean, I feel like even to do the little bit that I do. And I feel like I've fallen short significantly in this task, but I feel like I am at least trying to be of service to somebody that I believe is a true servant of Allah, who does act on faith, not fear, who has consistently exhibited courage in the face of injustice, right? And, and that's who I think Kyrie, right? Aside from him being your dad, that this is the man that you're of service to. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I, I it's the reality of our condition is disheartening and painful. And yes, is there risk? There is risk. There is risk in standing up against um, systemic oppression. It, there's risk in I mean, even if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, how many accidental deaths there have been like. I won't say that there's no risk in being in, in just speaking 
I don't want to say truth to power, right? But just speaking out, unrestrained, um, being courageous in, in doing what your faith dictates that you do, right? Um, and that takes a lot of tawakkul and understanding that, like, irrespective of what happens, so long as I speak truth and I stand for truth, that at the end, Allah is in control of whatever happens, right? And, and anybody, if you look at, you don't even have to go to American history, you go to our Islamic history, anybody who is, has laid the foundation, like if you study the Sirah and if you study um, the scholars, some of the scholars paid a very, very heavy price for speaking truth in situations where um, there were political, there was political opposition for the truth, right? That's our history. And they have set the example for us that irrespective of consequence, we have a duty of truth, we have a duty of justice. And Imam Jamil has been wronged. And um, it's, it's just, it's very disheartening um, to be in a position where, even if you look at the informants in this case, right? Even just knowing the informants, it, it will shock the conscience because you walk around wondering, like, does anyone stand on principle? Does anyone stand on faith? Does anyone stand on truth? Does anyone exhibit courage? Like, show some courage. So, you know, we're grateful to you, to Linda Sarsour, who just gave Kyrie uh, a forum to speak on. We're thankful to all the people who do step up and do whatever they can within their platform. Um, every little bit counts. Um, and without calling people out, I think there are people who have fallen very short. And I, I understand like the immigrant struggle, like I'm a daughter of immigrants and I understand like how colonization works on the mind and how like going against the grain is sometimes something that's like outside of the realm of their understanding because they're trained so much as an immigrant population to not challenge the status quo, right? And maybe that's changing now, but historically. And I think that um, perhaps the threat from those that are in power is a bit overwhelming for some, but at the end of the day, we just have to remember, at least from the Muslim perspective, that we answer to Allah. And, and from the larger outside community, if they could take somebody like HRAP Brown, the minute that you become in any way a controversial person, you will be erased. So if you stand for anything, if you really believe in, in Black Lives Matter, if you believe in civil rights, if you believe in human rights, and you just stand down and allow them to take this man when all of this evidence is, is, is present and is obvious, then we've all, I think it's an injustice against our own soul. Yeah, so in light of that, I think, um, you know, People that are listening, they may have heard of this case vaguely, maybe some are more familiar, and others, this will be news to them. They may have never even heard of this. And I think, you know, to Kyrie, to your point, the importance of really just getting it, the narrative, you know, the, the story, just telling the story is, is really important. Uh, but I guess we can close, you know, I'd like to ask both of you any, um, you know, actionable items, either ways that people can learn more about this, this case or his life you know, his broader life and his work, um, but also the ways that people can support or action items or, you know, um, anything that any, that any of us can do to um, push it towards the direction of a, of a fair trial. 
<clears throat> no, absolutely. Uh, well, to get up to speed, uh, really catch up on who the imam is, uh, was, and 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 uh, and all those things. There's actually an article in Time Magazine. I do not currently have the link to it, but a good friend of mine named Rembert Brown, who also grew up with me, played basketball with me, was coached by my father, uh, is a is an amazing writer, uh, journalist, and he put together that piece in Time Magazine. And it's very comprehensive. It took him about four years to write it. He traveled the country doing interviews and things like that because he really wanted to be able to give not just his personal perspective, but a lot of other people's personal perspective on who a Trap Brown all the way through to Imam Jamil uh, uh, is. And so go grab, go check that out. Uh, I'm going to ask Wasik, actually. I think he's probably watching this. So Wasik, can you add that link to our link tree um, to the Time Magazine article so it's easily uh, found by folks? But if you just type in hrap brown imam jamil time in google it'll pop up and you'll be able to uh grab that right away so that's uh one piece as far as learning more about the case you can go to uh what happened to rap.com or actually you can go to freemamjamil.com which is a uh, our link tree that has all of our action items and you can go to the the the, the, the one that says purchase the merch if you go to that one uh it also has all of the information uh about trial from excuse me, uh, my Siri popped up. All, yeah, all the information about the trial, uh, all of the misinformation about the trial, you can see the confessions, you can see everything there. Um, as far as action items go, once again, freemamjamil.com is our link tree and our current action item. We, we try to pick one thing and focus on it per campaign um, for, for continuity's sake. And so right now, we are pushing to have the man who committed this crime interviewed by a major uh, network, whether that be CNN, 60 Minutes. Um, those are the two we're focused on. But if someone else catches on and picks it up, we're happy to ride with them as well. But we want uh, an expose. True crime in America right now is a huge genre of entertainment for uh, for the American people. And we have a true crime uh, case right here that's hot and ready to be picked up by our people and uh, and pushed forward. And so this is the route that we want to take. So in order to do to help us push this forward, all you have to do again is go to freemamjamil.com, click the uh, button that says CNN 60 minutes and follow the instructions. Uh, it's very simple. It's a copy and paste email um, with the with the addresses that you need to send it to. It takes about 45 seconds uh, to get it done. And outside of that, you know, we have a donation link. If you'd like to donate to the cause, we appreciate it. Uh, everything helps. Um, but that's really it. Our CNN uh, 60 minutes push to get Otis Jackson uh, interviewed and to really get the discussion started um, in the mainstream about why this is happening to uh, a man that deserves our reverence uh, at the very least. Absolutely. So what happened to rap.com is actually, I know Kyrie doesn't stress it, but he did such a great job at putting it together, but it's what happened and the number two rap.com. So people know how to find that. Um, and also I recommend because as Kyrie mentioned, it's one action item at a time. So it's really important to kind of stay abreast of what's going on as things change and evolve. Um, those action items change. So uh, if you can follow uh, underscore at underscore free Imam Jamil on Instagram and students for Imam Jamil on Facebook um, and whatever social media, the students for Imam Jamil uh, take kind of the lead on these social pushes. So just stay abreast of what's going on. 
And if there is something, if there's someone in your network that you feel can help this push or anything helps, even if you share the post, if you bring awareness, if you do a session, you know, teaching a class on who Imam Jamil El Amin is, there, whatever it is within your capacity to do to bring forth awareness to this matter will help. So reach out to us and we can figure it out together, inshallah. Alhamdulillah, I appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, we ask Allah to, to guide to truth and to justice and to show us truth is truth and allow us to align with it, to show us falsehood as falsehood and allow us to stay away from it. And, um, you know, we pray for, for justice for Imam Jamil and justice for all those who have not been given a fair trial and who are wrongfully imprisoned. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we're honored that you would come on here and you would share this. And uh, we pray that, you know, the hearts of people will change. And I, I believe that truly if people understood the context of this, that, you know, that people have goodness in their hearts and they would understand it. So I hope that this this is a, a drop in that bucket to turn the tide, inshallah. Is that for oh. Oh, yeah.